0: Years ago, really decades ago, before I was ever born, when my parents were kids back in the 1940s, the way kids entertained themselves back then was a little bit different than how they entertain themselves today. You know, there were no video games back in the 1940s. There were no cell phones. There were no video games on cell phones. And you might, you know, might wonder if you're a kid, well, how did they even survive? I mean, weren't they just bored to death? How, how do you survive childhood without shooting zombies? I, I mean, come on. So they actually did just fine, even though there were no video games for them, because children back then engaged a part of their brains that today video games accomplish on their behalf. And they used what's called their imagination. And so, back in the 1940s, families would typically gather around the radio, and they would listen to different radio shows that would come on. They'd listen to the news together as a family, or they would listen to uh, comedies together, or they would listen to music together. Can you imagine listening to the same music that your parents listened to? Just unheard of, right? Right? And sometimes they would even listen to scary shows that came on the radio. And one of the most famous scary shows that came on the radio was a show called Inner Sanctum. And the host would say something like this. Good evening, friends. Friends of the Inner Sanctum. This is Raymond, your host. Please enter. And then, this old, creaky door of the inner sanctum began to open. Spooky, isn't it? Some of you, I just took you back to your childhood, too. But the name of that show was chosen very intentionally, very carefully. Inner Sanctum. We don't use that word sanctum very much. I mean, a sanctum is not a common place. A sanctum is a a sacred place. It's a private place. It's a mysterious place. A sanctum isn't common like a marketplace or a business or a school. A sanctum is unusual. There are not very many places that we might enter that are truly sanctums. I mean, who really knows what happens in a sanctum, right? Who would dare to walk into an inner sanctum? Well, that idea of a sanctum is very close, as you might be able to expect, from, uh, to the idea of being sanctified. You can hear the common root that they have together. You see, when something is sanctified, it's made unusual. It's made mysterious. It's made uncommon. When something is sanctified, it's made holy. Holy. And so today, my friends, as your host, I'd like to invite you to take the briefest of journeys with me as we encounter one of the most mysterious names of God in all of the ancient scriptures, Yahweh, Mekadesh, the Lord who sanctifies Now, I want you to remember as we begin this journey that every name that God has given in the Bible actually reveals something that is otherwise a mystery to us about His nature. And not only do God's names reveal His nature, but they serve another purpose as well for us because every name of God also contains within it a promise or an application Our lives today. And this name of God, the Lord who sanctifies, is a very mysterious name altogether because it's only mentioned twice in all of the Old Testament. And you might think, well, twice, you know, that's two more times than Vincent Price is mentioned in the Old Testament, right? I mean, how important could it be? That the Lord who sanctifies that name, how important could that name be if it's only mentioned twice in the Hebrew Scriptures? Well, I would say it's very important because even though that exact term is only mentioned twice, the idea of sanctification, consecration, holiness, all of that coming from that same Hebrew word is mentioned repeatedly. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And so this is a very important concept. It's a very important name. And these two times that the term the Lord is, the Lord who sanctifies is mentioned, tell us something very important about the very nature of God and the nature of ourselves. And so the first place where this is mentioned is in Exodus chapter 31, verse 13. We'll look at verses 12 and 13. In Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 and 13, they appear on the screen behind me. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this. Here's the message, okay? You must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies. You okay? So let's get into this just a little bit. The Lord had instituted Sabbaths for Israel, His people, His children, to observe, and they these Sabbaths served as a means by which they were set apart from the other nations. And so Egypt, which was on the border of Israel, and, and all of these other nations, the Canaanites and the Philistines, and all of these other nations, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they would look at Israel. And they would say, why are you observing these Sabbaths? And, and the answer would be very simple, because this is a way we show our devotion to our God. You have your gods, you have the Baals, and you have the Astroths, and you have Ra, and you have all these other gods that you all worship, but we have a God, and He has a name, and we call Him Yahweh. And we are devoted to this particular God because He is the Lord Most High. He is the highest of all of the gods that could ever be imagined. And He is not simply a figment of our imagination, but He is real. He is the Creator of all. And we are devoted to Him. And so when we observe our Sabbaths, it is a way of distinguishing between us and the rest of all of you who worship other gods. And so the Sabbath served as a way for the Israelites to be set apart. Now, what in the world is a Sabbath? Some of you may know, but in case you didn't know, a Sabbath was basically a day of rest. It was a day of rest for the people. And everyone in Israel was commanded to observe these Sabbaths. Everyone from the lowest of the lowest servants to the king himself of Israel had to observe the Sabbaths. The Sabbaths were so important that even the animals had to observe the Sabbaths. The Sabbaths were so important that even the land that God gave Israel had to observe a Sabbath from time to time. And so the Sabbath, in very general terms, was a day where the common Israelite would focus on God. That Israelite would cease from all creative activity, and he would spend the day... Focusing on God, and so there was no planting of the ground, no plowing of the ground, no planting of seeds. There was no harvesting of the crops. There was no preparation of meals. There was no cooking. There was no cleaning. There was no mending of garments. All of these things ceased. Israel ceased from all of these creative activities, and they spent that day focusing on God. And you might wonder, well, how do you do that? I mean, how do you how do you focus on God for a whole day? I mean, really, like, what do you do? Just sit in your recliner and just go, God. You know, how do you focus on God? How, do you, how does that, how does a person actually do that, right? And, well, the Sabbath had some deeper meanings than just someone sitting on their couch, you know, and, and thinking about the name God, okay? To the, to the Jews, the Jewish Sabbath, it was, first of all, a reminder of the original day of rest that God had instituted into his creation. You remember Genesis? Very early parts of Genesis, six days God worked. The seventh day God rested. God didn't rest because he was tired. God rested because he was celebrating. He was celebrating all the rest of the days in which he created everything that exists. And so that original day of rest was built into the very fabric of all of creation, even into the fabric of your soul. And so the Jewish Sabbath was a remembrance of God's original day of rest. And so when the Sabbath was given to the Jews, they were reminded of this powerful truth. That the entire world that God has created has a purpose. And not only does the entire world have a purpose, but I have a purpose too. God has made me in His own image. And so I have a purpose The purpose of humanity is to rule over the world as a good manager, as a good steward of everything that God owns. And so the Sabbath day was a day to reflect on that powerful truth and that responsibility, that awesome responsibility that God has given humanity. The Jewish Sabbath also memorialized how God rescued the Israelites From Egypt. Now, what were they in Egypt? They were slaves. Guess how many days of rest a week a slave gets? Zero. They got no rest whatsoever. So, for some 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God. God finally answered their prayers. God rescued them, and God gave them every single week a day to cease from their labor. And if you think that they might have been grateful for that day, you'd be exactly right. And so the Jewish Sabbath served as a possibility and a a day of enjoyment of the personal freedoms that God had given them. The Jewish Sabbath also was a day to lay aside all of the burdens of life and not worry about the burdens of life and just reflect on God. And that's a good practice for us. We need times where we just lay aside our burdens, and we then can experience the peace, the shalom, that God wants us to experience. And the Jewish Sabbath also was a foretaste of the world in which God had promised. God promises us a new heaven and a new earth. And there is a very powerful sense in which that experience for us when we get to that new heaven and new earth with new resurrected bodies that entire experience will be a time of eternal rest rest in god will we be given work to do i think we will but the work will not be toilsome we will not be fighting against nature and against time restraints and everything else in order to get our work accomplished but it will be a joy and so we will have rest in the new world Here's the question for us. Is the Jewish Sabbath something that you and I as Gentile Christians have to observe? Well, I would just tell you this. There's absolutely no harm. It would be a good thing, in fact, for us to take some time every so often to enjoy God as Creator, to remember that He's the one who's freed us, to remember that He's the one who takes our burdens away, that He's the one who's promised us a new heaven and a new earth. And if you, there's nothing wrong, I think, with setting aside a day of the week in order to celebrate all of those things. And I would remind you that God has built rest into your very soul, just as he does throughout the rest of creation. And if you're someone who never takes a break, you're going to wear yourself out. And it very well may be that God will come back and get that rest one way or the other, if you're not careful. God wants us to enjoy his rest and his favor. He wants us to celebrate him as the creator of all. But I would tell you this as well. Observing the Jewish Sabbath is not obligatory for Christians. Why? Because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath law. He has instituted a new covenant with us. We're not under the old covenant of Judaism. We're under a new covenant that God has established. And we, in fact, have a day of celebration. And we call it the Lord's Day. It's called the Lord's Day, because if you read the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, every time Jesus appeared after He was resurrected, it happened to be the Lord's day. And so that's a wonderful day for what you and I typically call Sundays, uh, but it, I'd like to refer to it as the Lord's Day. That should be a day in which we come together as we do today, and celebrate God's goodness. And so this new Sabbath, excuse me, this new covenant that you and I have. It is not a covenant that's based on Sabbaths or moons or festivals or uh, temple observances. And all of those things have tremendous meaning and they're great and they're very rich in their meaning. And yet all of those things are a sign of something that is greater and really it's someone who is greater. And it is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who has saved us. Yet for ancient Israel, the Lord used those Sabbath observances as a way to set them apart from all of the other nations which worshipped other gods. The second Hebrew scripture that uses that term, the Lord who sanctifies, is found in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. I invite you to turn to that passage. In Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8, it very simply says this. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sets you apart. So whether in this translation the previous scripture said, consecrates you, or here in this verse says, Sets you apart, or in your translation it may say sanctifies you, It's the same idea. It's the same Hebrew Scriptures. Different translators might translate it different ways. But He is the Lord who sanctifies you. And in this passage in Leviticus, the Lord had given Israel His law. He had given Israel, this is very important, He had given Israel His word. He had given Israel His statutes, His precepts. He had given Israel His law. And by observing them, they were made different than all of the other nations around them. They were sanctified. And it is this way that you and I are sanctified by the Lord by keeping His law, keeping His Word. You see, you and I We can't keep all of the Old Testament laws as they were originally given. Okay, For example, the Old Testament law said that ritual animal blood sacrifices have to be practiced. But guess what? We don't do that anymore. I don't know the last time you came to church and sacrificed a goat. Not going to be happening. Why? Because animal sacri- sacrifices don't exist anymore. Why not? Because when Jesus died on the cross, His death replaced the need for blood sacrifices. What did the animal blood sacrifices in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament do? What they did was they delayed God's wrath. They delayed God's wrath. Year after year, on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices would delay the wrath of of God, but when Jesus died on the cross, there was no more delay. God poured out his wrath on his own son. No more delay. And because God poured out his wrath on his own son on our behalf, now you and I have no more need for the animal sacrifices of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Old Testament law says that certain observances have to be done in the tabernacle or in the temple. But when Jesus died on the cross, there was a a giant curtain, a literal curtain, inches thick. And that curtain separated people from the very presence of God in the temple. And that curtain was torn in two from the top all the way down to the bottom. And then a few decades later, in AD, in the year AD 70, the Jewish temple itself was completely destroyed. And so today, you and I do not have a temple in which we obey God. We are the temple in which we obey God. Old Testament law says that there are certain people, only certain people, who are set apart as priests. And these priests have to observe certain observances for all of the people. But now, there is no more Old Testament priesthood. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, He died on the cross as our great high priest. And what He did was, he made a way for every single one of us to come directly to God. And not only that, but He, as the great high priest, has made every one of us believers in Him priests ourselves. Every one of us is a priest. What does this mean? If you're a priest, it means you have the ability now to go directly into the very presence of God, to go directly into His throne room. And not only can you go into His throne room, but as a priest, you can intercede on behalf of others who may not yet know Him. And this is the most powerful truth of all. As a priest, you have this right and this ability, and here's what it is. You have the right and the ability to introduce people that you know to the God of the universe. What king in the history of mankind would open up his throne room and allow anyone to walk right in and to bring a friend in and say, friend, I want you to meet the king. There's only one king who would do that, and it is God. And God has given you As a believer in Him, the priestly authority and the responsibility, and really it's the privilege of bringing the people that you know into the very presence of God and telling them, I would like for you to meet God. What an incredible privilege we have. You see, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that means that somebody else, had a role in bringing you to God. And the moment that you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you were saved. What that means is this, that at that very moment that you had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it means that your eternal destiny was changed from hell to heaven. At that very moment, it means that you were declared righteous by God. It means at that very moment that you were forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and the sins you had not yet committed. And at that very moment, you began a lifelong process called sanctification, in which you become more and more like Christ. Now, what do you do if you misbehave? If you're a Christian and you misbehave, what what happens there? Listen, if you misbehave as a Christian, you are still forgiven. Your failure does not negate the price Jesus paid for you. But God does want you to work on your tendencies to misbehave. He is at work in you, His Spirit dwells within you. And God is patient. And His Spirit is within you, ready each and every day to make you more like Christ. This is what the Lord calls being sanctified. And so how does the Lord who sanctifies, how does He sanctify us? He sanctifies us through His Word. Through His Word. Jesus, in John chapter 17... Prayed a very lengthy prayer. Theologians call this the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying as the high priest on our behalf. This is a part of his prayer that he's praying to his heavenly Father. He prays in verse 14 of that chapter. I have given them, that's us, I have given them your word. The world hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus prayed. And then he said, your word is truth. How are we sanctified? By the Word of God. God transforms us from the sinful creatures that we are into the image of Jesus Christ by using His Word. How in the world does the Bible, how does the Word of God change us? Because the Word of God has power to change us. Why does the Word of God have power to change us? Because the Word of God is the truth. Sanctify them by the truth, Jesus said. Your Word is truth. Here's the point. There are a lot of messages that you can listen to these days. You're bombarded on your cell phone, on your TV, on the radio, every other way, by people whispering in your ear, by people that you meet at work, people that you meet at school, and they tell you all kinds of messages that you might believe. You're constantly bombarded by this person's viewpoint and another person's philosophy and another group's ideas. And the things, by the way, which people say to you that were deemed to be absolutely true ten years ago are no longer true today. And the things that people are saying today will be dismissed or debunked, disregarded in another decade. But God's Word is absolutely true. God's Word never changes God's standards are always perfect. God's absolutes are not subject to popularity or to polls or to politics because God's Word is pure. It is true. And here's what happens. When your mind engages God's Word, there is a collision of your false beliefs with the truth of God's Word. The false beliefs that reside in your mind that cause you to disobey God are confronted by the truth of God's Word. The false beliefs that cause you to act destructively toward the relationships that are important to you are dismantled by the very Word of God. The false beliefs that lie to you and tell you that you are worthless, that you are hopeless, that you are helpless. Those lies are dismantled by the truth of God's word if we would only engage our minds with the word of God. You see, when lies that we hear have to face the truth, the truth always wins. Why? Because that is the nature of truth. When the darkness encounters the light, the darkness has to flee. Why? Because that is the nature of light to make the darkness flee. And some of the things that you have fed your mind with, some of the garbage that you've put your mind into and that you've put into your mind are nothing more than lies of the devil. What you need is to engage your mind with the Scriptures. What you and I must do if we want to experience the Lord who sanctifies is very simple. Put God's Word in our mind. That's simple. That means we read it, we listen to it, we hear it, we consume it. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of of God. God has given us his word because it is his word through the power of the Holy Spirit that changes us into something infinitely more beautiful. It changes us into the image of God's son. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful blessing. That God himself would look upon me, a sinner, who deserves death and hell, and say to me, I'm going to make you into the image of my son. I don't deserve that. Neither do you. But that's how good God is. That's why we can call Him the Lord who sanctifies. I talked just a few minutes ago about what Jesus did on the cross and how He purchased salvation for us. And He begins us in this long process called sanctification. If today you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and you want to receive Him, you want to be forgiven of your sins, you want to change your eternity from being in hell to being with God in heaven. If you want to be cleansed from all of your sins and have the guilt of your conscience removed, it comes by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is truly in your heart admit who you are, and that is that you're a sinner, And that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe that he died on the cross for you. That you believe that he rose from the grave to give you eternal life. And that you surrender yourself to him. Commit yourself to him. To following him for the rest of your life. And by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those incredible things that Jesus did on the cross will become very real to you. And you will be forgiven.